And I think Chaim Walder is a buzzword nowadays for sexual right. trauma. Everybody can understand when somebody older and with power uses even his if kind you of cognitive or position to take advantage. But what happens in marriage best for you is that similar? You do women and maybe even men you. have that same feeling sometimes of not having their bodies as their own or their autonomy? System. This is Hope to Recharge. I'm Atana. I'm here to guide you and support you through your challenging times navigating through depression, anxiety, and other mental health struggles. Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining me here today. I am with Tali Rosenbaum. I just told her that I feel like I'm with my mentor, like somebody that I really look up to. I listen to her very often on her podcast, Intimate Judaism, and it's one of my, I want to say top 10, but it's, I think it's my top five that Every episode that comes out, I make time to listen to it because, and sometimes it's multiple times and the shares that go afterwards, like the enthusiasm, the shares, it's first of all with my husband, sometimes with my children, sometimes with people that, with clients that I say, oh my gosh, you have to listen to this. This is like groundbreaking work. You are the co-host of Intimate Judaism, the podcast with Rabbi Scott Kahn, and you are the co-author of Anila Dodi, I Am For My Beloved, with Dr. David Ribner. He went to school with my father. He's a very dear friend of my father's. We grew up in Hard Nose together. They grew up in America together. I don't remember how I came across your work. I think somebody shared an episode of your podcast, and I fell in love with your work. You are a marriage and family therapist in Israel, but you were raised in America. You have both cultures. You're like dancing on both grounds. Correct. Correct. Yes. And I think what is the most heartwarming for me and what attracts me to listen to all of your content is you have a lot of empathy to what is not working, not trying to fix, but to try to have the language to explain that the people that feel like something is not working, they're not alone, to bring up conversations that were taboo before, to go a little bit deeper into halakha, to maybe challenge a little bit halakha, and to say, oh, wait, the halakha is saying this, but let me tell you what goes on in my office. <laughs> right, Tali? Right. Matana, I want to thank you for having me on your podcast. I have listened to some of the episodes and I really connect with your enthusiasm and your warmth and also your vulnerability, your openness about your own story. So thank you for everything that you do. Thank you. Thank you. This is very exciting. Originally, I think it was when the story with Chaim Mulder came out and the whole world was talking about it. And I was one of the only ones that was silent. I was listening. I was not talking. And I wasn't talking because I had nothing to say. I really had nothing to say. And after, I think, a few months, people were very into throwing out his books and talking about how do we prevent. And I was listening and listening. And I said, first of all, I'm not shocked at all. This is not shocking. I don't know why the world is shocked. I was not shocked at all. I didn't know him. I never heard him speak. I never heard of him. And the more I was listening to to people, the more I was saying, wait, let's bring it back home. Let's talk about what I hear a lot is the brokenness that happens in the Jewish family, not out of he's a bad husband, he's terrible, he's a narcissist, those extremes. I'm not talking about that. These women that are brought up and went into a marriage in 15, 20, 25 years, even 30 years into a marriage, say, I didn't even think about what was going on. I fell apart. Something happens in life and they fall apart and then they start reflecting back. 
and they see, wait, something wasn't working and I didn't even have a language. I didn't even have a thought. I didn't even know. And that's what I want to talk about. How can we educate our children just like we educate them to be aware of who to stay away? What are the dangers outside in school, the rebellion, the mentors, the neighbor, the person you're babysitting for? How can we also educate them how to approach intimacy properly? How to have a conversation? How do we evolve with ourselves in intimacy? How is it okay to think outside of the box and how to trust our instinct when something is not okay and have a communication and not be afraid? Oh, am I not a God-fearing Jew? Does this mean I'm broken? Does this mean I'm not religious? Does this mean I don't believe in God? Does this mean that I don't believe in the Torah mitzvahs? Because these are all things that I went through many times through my journey and my very hard relationship with Nida. But I want to say, the more I talk about it, the more women come and say, thank you for sharing that. I thought it was only me. I thought that I was not allowed to think about it. I thought that maybe my relationship with Hashem was broken, with God was broken because I had a hard time going to the mikvah. I had a hard time during intimacy, the rules, or not showing up for my husband the way he expects me to and the way my Kala teacher taught me to or the way the Hassan teacher taught my husband to. And there's just this conflict and just like it'd be separated. And I'm showing up because I have to, not because I want to. And you speak about it in your book, Anila Dodi. I think it's a beautiful guide and it has to be read multiple times as a couple I think if the goal is to have a healthy marriage read it as a couple when you're dating because there's different things that you won't even understand till you come across it go through the different stages and read the book and evolve with the book wow I think that you said a lot and if I could maybe try to frame what we're talking about yes you did start by talking about Chaim Walder and I think Chaim Walder is a buzzword nowadays for sexual right. trauma. Right. And I think you're talking about the idea of trauma and right. things that we don't talk about and how to talk about it. And when you say everybody can understand when somebody older and with power uses his kind of authority or position to take advantage. But what happens in marriages? Is that similar? Do women and maybe even men have that same feeling sometimes of not having their bodies as their own or their autonomy. I think that's what you're getting at. Am I right? Yes. I'll tell you something about my own professional journey that I think will shed light on why I am pretty passionate about this subject. Before I became a therapist, for many years, I began my first career was in the medical field. And I, I actually had wanted to be a doctor, but it just didn't quite work out with life. And I became a physical therapist. And shortly after I was in physical therapy, I became a pelvic floor physical therapist. And I specialized in treating sexual pain disorders, treating women with pelvic floor issues. And after working in the field for several years, one thing that really began to really touch me, and it was hard for me because I didn't have the tools to deal with it, were women who would come in and say, look, I just got married. I have to consummate the marriage. I don't need to enjoy it. Mm -hmm. I just need to be able to have sex. And I mm -hmm. would say, what's the urgency here? And the answer would be, because don't you know, my husband needs it. And I was told that if he spills seed, it's my fault. If I don't give him what he needs, he's going to go look for it somewhere else. If I don't get pregnant right away, my mother-in-law is mm -hmm 
be bothering me. People are asking me. My college teacher is asking me. And then there would be like the story included a bodeket. And maybe the bodeket even opened me and tore my hymen. So there would be like a series of narratives that were heartbreaking, especially when they would say to me, okay, do what you have to do down there. At the time, I was working as a physical therapist. Do what you have to do because I need to be able to perform. I need to be able to function. I knew that this was not okay. And I began to say to the women that you're not with me, you're dissociating. They knew they were dissociating. That's what I do during sex to get over it. I understood that I was working with a population of which many of the women were traumatized. And I even ended up working with some women who would actually have actual flashbacks. And I knew that this was not okay for me. And not only was I going to retrain and become a therapist and specialize in trauma, I was going to teach physical therapists how to be trauma-informed in the work that they do. And that's where I am today. I give courses to pelvic floor physical therapists on what to do, how to counsel, how to talk about pleasure and not getting through the pain, how not to collude with a system that tells women, do whatever you need to do, drink wine, put Mardim, anesthetize because, you know, your husband needs your body and your body is there to serve him and all that kind of rhetoric that was adding to the trauma for many women. So that's really what ignited my passion. And then obviously when I became a therapist and started working with women and working with with couples, I would see that same dynamic, but I would slow them down. And very often when I was working, women would say to me, they would recognize themselves. Women would go, or couples, women would go to therapists, to sex therapists, or to doctors or physiotherapists, or regular therapists who aren't even sex therapists. And they would say, I I just have this reaction to sex. I don't want it. My body doesn't want it. I'm not relaxed. It hurts or whatever, all these things. And they are asked, did you have any sexual trauma? Mm. And they would say, no, nothing ever happened to me. I don't recall ever being sexually abused or anything like that. Sometimes they would say, gee, maybe I wasn't, I don't remember or whatever, Mm. but I just don't remember that happening. When they would come to me and I would talk to them about the first few weeks and months of their marriage, and they would describe this feeling of not really having autonomy over their body and this need to allow something to happen that they didn't really want. And I think it would become quite clear that this in itself is a type of trauma. And sometimes there would also be a narrative of the partner coercing. But I have to tell you, that's not usually the narrative. Most men are not really interested in having sex with a woman who is checked out and passive. However, oftentimes the men in the scenario are not taught about that particular connection that needs to be made, and they're told that they have to do what they have to do. And so they're also kind of part of a system in which they feel, they'll often say to me, I feel like a, I feel I'm a rapist, or I feel like I'm being raped into being a rapist, or all wow. kinds of things that get said. Wow around the dynamic of to perform pressure to consummate without the adequate tools, without the adequate journey, time that it takes to build an intimate relationship, without sufficient preparation, without sufficient allowance for the development of emotional intimacy before marriage. And so this can and does unfortunately create in some couples, this very dark beginning. And once they've had this dark beginning, it can be healed, but it's difficult to heal because even if you cognitively 
know that your partner wants the best for you and doesn't want to hurt you and doesn't want to coerce you, those early weeks created a certain threat in your nervous system. We have an emotional brain. It's not part of the cognitive frontal portion, which is our rational brain. It's part of, in the emotional brain, it's, there's what's called the limbic system, which reacts to threat with a fight, flight, or freeze response. Mm -hmm. So even months or years afterwards, when there's been a healing process that takes place, at least on a cognitive level, and there's been an understanding, there's still another process that needs to happen where the nervous system is able to experience their partner as somebody who's safe, as somebody who's going to respect the boundaries, not be coercive. And this is really a process of healing. And I think it's important that we talk about these things, Montana, because it doesn't have to get to this. We can prevent these cases by talking more about adjustment to physical intimacy. We can talk more about consent and boundaries and desire and pleasure and bodily autonomy. And having these conversations can and will empower women and men, empower right. couples to take over their own sex lives and not feel like they're needing to fulfill the expectations of the college teacher, the chassan teacher, the mother-in-law, the father-in-law, the mashkia, whoever, all these people who are involved in, did they succeed, quote unquote, mm -hmm. a lot of use of the words, we succeeded, we tried, we failed, we, a lot of that kind of pressure. As you say in the book, I think you said sex, it's not a job or you gave the definitions of what they're not. And, and it's not a, like a goal, like we need to have sex and it has to work out. Exactly. It's look, I think eventually every young couple wants to be able to feel normal and they want to be able to know that they can have sex, mm -hmm. they can do it and they can do it with pleasure and with mm -hmm. satisfaction. And that doesn't always come easily because it is somewhat of a learning process. But unfortunately, the goal of pleasure orientation, the goal of connection, the goal of mutual satisfaction gets lost in the message of consummation. Right. Not just consummation, but continuation, certain times, certain number of times a week. And also that underlying message of, I have to give it to him. Yeah. What is that? Where does that come from? Because I hear a lot, what am I supposed to do? The women say, what am I supposed to do? That's a, like a common theme that I hear. What am I supposed to do? What if I don't, so who will? Well, look, I think that we can value that the, that the Torah values sexual expression as taking place between a husband and a wife. Okay, that's something that we can pretty much all agree on. However, the idea that no matter what the needs are, they need to be fulfilled by the partner at all times in order to prevent, let's say, masturbation or use of pornography or going to another person and having sex with somebody else. People are responsible for their behaviors and right. people ought to be able to regulate their behaviors. You don't always get what you want when you want it. Yeah. And we need to learn to live with that. We need to learn to find ways to deal with that. And sometimes we might decide to take care of something ourselves, despite the perceived sin of it, right. because you don't want to, what is better? 
when you think about it, is it better to coerce your wife or make your wife do something that she doesn't want to do? And I think that this kind of, with all due respect for the values of navigating sexuality within the context of the marital relationship, we have to do that with integrity. Yes. We have to do that with dignity. We can't do it by using one partner as a receptacle. That's not okay. And I think growing up in the Beis Yaakov world, I don't know what it's like now. I'm 25 years out of Beis Yaakov, but I don't think it changed that dramatically in the last 25 years. I rem- I was a very timid, shy girl in the Beis Yaakov world. And I remember in high school, they used to say that if we dress a certain way, we'll be the sultry one that will make the men sin. I won't forget it, that I came home in shock. And I said, Ima, how is me showing up in the world have to do with what the man sees and how he controls himself? I said, that can't be my responsibility. And I don't remember her comforting me and saying, Matana, it's not on you. It's not on you. Do you sometimes feel stuck? Do you wish you can be somewhere else? Do you have a vision of where you want to get to, but you just don't know what the first step to take in order to get to that life that you're dreaming of? How did I shift from deep depression, from extreme anxiety to a thriving life, to a productive life, to a life full of joy? I put many things into practice and it's every single day. Many of you know that it's gratitude, a healthy mindset, boundaries, self-love, and one of the most important things that many people don't speak about self-forgiveness and forgiveness to others essential for healing if you want to work one-on-one with me on these topics in order to move forward towards that dream life that you have a vision of click the link below in the show notes it's a custom made program for you one-on-one with me we will develop a concrete program that you can implement in your life so you can create a better well-being click the link below looking forward to working with you Look, I think that variations of that theme are actually present in throughout the spectrum of society, unfortunately. I think that it's certainly very blatant when young women are taught that the reason why they should dress in a modest way is to guard the eyes of men. Right. And by the way, the flip side of that message is after you're married, your role is to be sexual in order to give him his needs and save him from sin. Exactly my point. That was exactly my point. That it leads to another. The girl growing up is so confused. And I can only hope and pray that those messages are changing. They're certainly changing in the way that certainly our podcast tries to provide a Jewish approach. It is also a sexually healthy and psychologically healthy approach that doesn't objectify the woman that, because really those are not messages necessarily that are consistent with Judaism's message about sexuality. If we put aside the messages from Beisako for a minute, Judaism really sees sexuality as a very positive way for a woman and a man to express their connection and their love for one another. And there's an unfortunate element to how women have been sexualized as objects that either ignite the passion of men are meant to, or are meant to somehow 
take care of the passion of men once they're married. Those are very difficult jobs for women to have. In a way, thinking like we're one now. So if we're one, he can decide, oh, because it says we're one. So in a way, we don't have our individual autonomy, which is incorrect. Yes, we're individuals in a marriage and we can create a oneness, but it doesn't mean that we don't have our individual needs and there has to be a communication about it. And I think that's not stressed enough. I don't know in the Tilo Me world, but I know that in the more right-wing world, it's not stressed enough that even though you're married, it's not, oh, my husband wants sex now. I have to comply. It's my job. We're one. We should be together. He's allowed to touch me at any time. He's allowed to ignite. Sometimes like we're in a mom's moment and we're like, don't be sexual with me. I'm in mom's mode now. Don't flirt with me. We talk about this a lot, that throughout the life cycle, there are going to be times where you feel maybe less interested. You know, there are going to be women listening to this, and there are also going to be men listening to this. And I do want to say something about the partner who does want more Mm -hmm. than the other partner, because there are often discrepancies in desire between partners. First thing I want to say, it's not always the woman who wants less and the man that wants more. There are marriages and there are women who feel very rejected. And in marriages where women want less, the men feel very rejected. I think that we also want to be able to provide empathy. Absolutely. That's really the ticket because what happens with a lot of couples that show up, and I'm not necessarily talking about the ones that really come in with trauma because they didn't have a voice. I'm talking about couples that have been able to communicate that there hasn't been a dynamic of coercion or worse, out and out abuse, but there really is a discrepancy in desire. And when one partner wants more and the other one wants less, often the lower desire partner can react with a certain amount of defensiveness or hostility, or why are you even asking me? And I think that what happens is that you don't always have to give your partner what your partner wants, but you do want to validate that they want it. And not shame them. Not shame them. When people want sex, they often want intimacy. And if you don't want to engage in sex, that's always legitimate, but that doesn't mean that you can't be available for some kind of intimacy, which is even just saying, wow, I really like it that you want me. I really like it that you like me. Thank you. That's at least not a rejecting response. Now it's not good for me, but maybe tomorrow, or maybe we can, I'm not forgetting you. I know that we want to be having some connected time together, but often there's a lot of guilt and that guilt is what creates the defensiveness or the disconnection for longer or the fear, the behaviors of avoidance. In other words, the belief that if I smile at my husband or if I hug my husband, or Mm. if I compliment my husband, he's going to think it's going to lead to mixed dancing. He's going to, and that's what I mean by safety. But that start has to start early. That's what I'm saying. This is what we have to teach our children pre-marriage, how these communications early on, how not to feel rejected if I'm in the mood. And let's say my husband is exhausted, just not in the mood, or he wants the night off, whatever it is, or the vice versa. How can we accept it and not see it as a rejection? 
and feel safe to communicate about. No, for sure. Or even to feel safe to communicate about how joyful it is. You know what? That position wasn't so exciting for me. That wasn't the greatest sex, but I'm so happy I was with you. I love you. It's not about the actual, like, how did we perform? There's right. so much language around it. Yeah, it's how did we connect? So I think that when we talk about trauma and we talk about sex, what we need to understand is that in order to enjoy sex, in order to relax, the kind of like the embodied experience of relaxation requires the feeling of safety. I'm safe, I'm relaxed in my body, mm-hmm. and nothing is going to happen to me. This is going to be a nice trip that I'm going right. to take. Now, what's important to know about trauma, and a lot of people don't know this, people understand that if anybody has had a sexual trauma, they're not going to be able to experience the embodied experience of relaxation and safety. What people are less familiar with is the fact that any kind of trauma, not necessarily sexual trauma, can create an experience of ongoing hypervigilance. In other words, the response to stress, fight, flight, freeze, can create sense of, I am always going to be a little bit alert and hyper aware of my environment so that I can be ready Mm -hmm. to run away at the first sign of danger. Right. That So it can be a car accident. It can be even emotional abuse that's not sexual. Anything that kind of interferes with the development of a feeling of safety, security, having your needs met, not being punished for having needs, all different sorts of childhood adverse experiences, whether they were like shock traumas or whether they were like a series of developmental traumas, can also affect the body's ability to relax, to let go, to experience pleasure, to be able to relax sufficiently to climax. And it's really often not even thought about, oh, and the other thing is that people go to sex counselors or sex educators or even sex therapists without anybody really asking about those experiences. And sometimes the intervention itself Mm. can trigger trauma because it, especially if it was sexual trauma, I don't know how, how graphic to get here, but if you're given a directed exercise for stimulation, Mm -hmm. even if it's self-stimulation, if you were stimulated in a way that was overwhelming to you, and then you're given like vibrator or something, and that feeling is overwhelming to you, that can trigger that same experience. So it's really important that anybody who's working in the field of sex, sexual education, sexual health, is really aware of the idea of autonomy and consent, even with yourself, pay attention to your sensations. And know when you're feeling overwhelmed, know when you're feeling uncomfortable, you need to feel like you're driving the car and that you are in charge of your own body and that you can stop it yourself if it feels overwhelming or uncomfortable. But the good news is that safety can be developed. It can be developed with yourself. It can be developed with your partner and you can achieve that safety eventually with your partner. It's just Half of the battle is knowing what we're dealing with. So many women who I see or couples who I see have been to other therapists and they tried a lot of these behavioral exercises and 
the kind of dynamics around the behavioral exercises just mirrored the dynamics like time and that like that same the power struggles around them mm-hmm. because it's the same avoidance that had yeah. to be because it was just so overwhelming so being able to go at it very slowly being really aware of your responses aware of if you go into a dissociative place where you just check out and freeze, that's all part of the first steps to then being able to integrate pleasure. And usually it begins with integrating pleasure, not even sexual pleasure, just being able to integrate right. pleasure into your life and then going into integrating sexual pleasure. And then of course, there's healing the dynamics of the relationship. Yeah, that's what I was about to ask. It usually comes after many years of failure. So the relationship is a little bit broken. It's Yeah, there often there's a lot of anger, a lot of resentment, mm-hmm. like this ongoing perpetual dynamic of one partner feels rejected mm-hmm. and really shut down and avoidant and the other partner feels angry that the only way that they can get their needs met, the closeness that they want is by quote unquote, providing sex right. and so do that. And then they're resentful about it. So we do need to break down the dynamics to create understanding. That's number one. Like when your partner can get you and you can get your mm-hmm. partner. And like what you said before about separation, you're not one person so that you can sit in two separate chairs. And when you're sitting in one chair, you can be completely a listener to the other person's narrative and not be in your own for a minute, mm-hmm. you're separating your own narrative, really like not getting defensive, not feeling guilty, not making it about you, really getting what they have gone through. And then the other way happens where they get what you've gone through. Mm-hmm. It's hard. When does that like repair happen? Because I'm hearing this and I'm like, wow, there's a lot of pain going on here. A lot of pain, but the repair happens. The repair often happens in the office. There are often some very emotional moments. And like I work with all kinds of people and I work with Hasidish people and I work with yeshivish people and I work with modern people and not even religious people. And people are people. We're all humans and we all feel and we all develop the muscles of empathy, of connection And some more than others, because a lot of our ability to connect has to do with, again, our childhood development and what we were taught about our entitlement towards pleasure, what we were taught about our entitlement to have autonomy over our bodies. Obviously, no complete autonomy when you're a child. If you have to get a strep test, you have to get a strep test. But the idea that your body is beautiful and it's not so many women report growing up, and this is true also in the Dati community, and that there's really no or very little relating to the physical, the physicality, the body. And so they go dating and they really don't know much about their body. They don't know themselves, let alone share it with someone else. Yeah. So the idea of promoting understanding of your own body, understanding of your menstrual period, when you're ovulating, there's like a lot of this kind of, none of this is relevant until marriage. That's not true. Mm. Your cycle is relevant. A hundred percent. Talking about this charge throughout the month is relevant. Like knowing about your body, you're allowed to know about your body. You're allowed to know how to insert a tampon. You're allowed to know about even your sexual arousal and what interests You're allowed to know all these things. And the more you know, by the way, the more you're empowered. A hundred percent. Your body. And the more you're likely to go into sexual interactions with a feeling of this is what I like. 
and I don't like that. Please stop. Don't right. do that. It doesn't feel good or that tickles. Or wait, we're not ready for that. That kind of language. And we're not taught that language. The only thing that we're taught is be showmare. So if you're not showmare, yeah. then what happens is that what about consent? And what about this doesn't feel good for me? Like people ask if they, in the modern Orthodox world with kids, if they want to quote unquote hook up, they'll say, are you showmare? And that drives me crazy because what business is it of yours? And even if I said no, that doesn't mean I'm going to touch you. Just because I'm not Shomer is not consent. I posted once on Instagram, the opposite of Shomer is not Hefker. Whoa. Oh, I like that. And I remember once giving a talk in a high school. I don't do that so much anymore. But once I gave a talk in a high school and the girl was talking about how her boyfriend wanted her to do a certain sex act on her. And she did it once because she was curious and he wanted it. And then she realized that she doesn't like it and she doesn't want to do it. She says, what do I do? He wants it. And I said, you don't have to do it. You don't want to do it. She says, yeah, but I already did it. I'm ready not show me. So the sense that, you know, also the way they teach it, do you ever have that? I mean, no. With, okay. So no. the tomato, everyone comes and touches the tomato. Yeah. And then the teacher says, who wants to eat this tomato after everyone's touched it? So the idea that if you engage in any kind of sexual activity, Activity. And this is also in that book that a lot of the young women read, I forget the name of it, where she says that every time someone touches you, it brings down your value in a way. So how do they compare that to every time I'm with consent with my husband, Zeolid, if it feels good? That doesn't count. I don't understand how they explain that because it's either it feels good or it doesn't. It feels right or it doesn't feel right. It's not. There's no discussion of how it feels. In that scenario, the discussion is about being touched. But that's fear factor. That's all about the fear factor of keeping yourself holy under the Torah law. And they're doing it in a way that, oh, I gain out of it. The gain is that it won't go down. That might, like, But why does it have to be like that? Why do we have to bring the fear factor into it versus saying the facts? Rabbi Orlowick always says, never tell children that the drugs are not good. And they're going to realize that it's phenomenal. So don't lie to them. You could say that the outcome of it is terrible, but don't tell them that it feels terrible because that's a lie. Is there something that's preventing you from achieving your goals or interfering with your happiness? Maybe it's anxiety or stress. BetterHelp.com will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. And you can start communicating in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line and it's not self-help. It's professional counseling done securely online with a broad range of expertise available depending on what you need and the services available for clients worldwide. You can log into your account anytime and send messages to your counselor. BetterHelp.com is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches that make it easy and free to change your counselors if you need to. And it's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. BetterHelp.com wants you to start living a happier life today. So visit BetterHelp.com slash hope to recharge. That's BetterHelp.com com slash hope to recharge and join over a million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. You'll also get 10% off your first month. Once again, that's betterhelp.com slash hope to recharge. I think that there's an agenda. I remember at that same school, the teacher, I guess she was afraid that I wasn't scaring them enough. And she said, tell them about diseases. Tell them about how if you have sex, you could get this disease or that disease. And I said, look, these girls are 18. When they're 19 or 20 and they're married, suddenly it's not dangerous anymore. BDU. Because they're married now. Why would sex be dangerous now and not be dangerous then? You have to talk about, you need to talk about safe sex. 
but you need to talk about safe sex before you need to talk about safe sex after. It's not about making it dangerous. Like you said, it's about values. It's yeah. about saying, look, sex, sex feels great. It's a good thing. We value waiting until marriage, right. but scaring them from doing it isn't really the way to do it. A hundred percent. I'm going to share a bit of my experiences. So I remember I gave birth to my first son. I was very orthodox and it was all about what the Kala teacher and the Hassan teacher said and follow the rules. I give birth. I think it was 10 weeks till I went to the mikvah. 10 weeks. Brutal. Like heart-wrenching brutality for my soul. It was a hard birth. It was a hard baby. What you spoke about the last episode, 45, I listened to it twice the end. And what I appreciate so much when Rabbi Scott Khan wrote, read out some paragraph about how maybe you're allowed to support your wife when she's giving birth. And I'm feeling like this hyperventilation. And then you said, I'm feeling feelings. I'm like, yep, I'm feeling feelings. <laughs> That's exactly how I'm feeling. Thank God Tali is justifying my feelings because I don't feel, again, I feel like I'm entitled to feel these feelings. It's halacha. What? You should be okay with it. He's not allowed to. I was always having hard feelings with Nida in general, the separation, this on, off, on, off. It's an abandonment. We don't talk for me, it was definitely, I felt abandoned. I had the communication about it. I was able to say it. I was able to talk about it. But I remember I went to the mikvah after 10 weeks. Now, mikvah in general was my pet peeve because I'm OCD. Very hard for me. Not about the cleanliness of me, about going into some water that was not mine. A pool in Florida, I'd never go into it. My kids know I never swim with them. It's my thing. I have a very hard time using public bathroom. And I always used to say to my husband, I'm going for you and hopefully for God, but definitely not for me. And I used to cry. And when I used to come home and I say, just hold me, just hold me in my tears. I felt violated. I really felt violated by the mikvah, by, by needing to go to something that I hated going to. The more I spoke about it, the more women said, what am I allowed to? I was feeling the same thing. I have panic attacks. Some woman said I self-harm myself before I went and I said, didn't your husband see? She says, don't worry. He never sees me naked. It's always in the dark. There was such a disconnect, mm, such yeah. a disconnect. And only because I shared my story was oh, she willing God. to share with me. And she's like, wait, I thought I was broken. I thought I was supposed to love the mikvah. I was, thought it was only me that hated it. And I'm like, and you can love your husband and you can love sex and you can love intimacy and really not connect to the mikvah. So after 10 weeks, I go to the mikvah. The next day I get my period. I thought, okay, I'm a nurse. I'm going to be now Nida free for a long time. Yay, yay. The next day, I remember the trauma. It was so traumatic that when I got pregnant with my second daughter, I was after I got over the first trimester of throwing up, I went to therapy. I said, I'm having so much anxiety. I didn't even know what from. After mm. two sessions, I realized it was from the abandonment that I'm going to feel. I'm so afraid of that Nida when I give birth. The whole experience of this pregnancy is about, oh my God, it's seven more months. It's six more months. And wow. it's really hard. These things come up and it's really, and it's God and it's religion and this fear of what are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do? And what you talk about in the book, communicate about it, talk about it, have empathy, have empathy. My husband 
many years afterwards said, after I had my panic attacks and we learned about how to deal with me, even if I'm an Anita, like you can stroke my back, you can hold me, ask a rabbi. And if you do, go to a bigger rabbi, go to big rabbis, like go to really big rabbis that know about mental health and Nida because you really need somebody huge with these things. And he said, he apologized. He said, I'm so sorry that I was so ignorant. And that was so healing. And we don't know it all. We really don't. It reminds me of a story of a woman who, first of all, thank you. It's really very touching. We woman I know was telling me that she went on birth control using pills right after the other. She just hated Nida. Yeah. She just hated the separation and the abandonment. And her husband would go over to the bed, like she used a big blanket to cover both beds and he would move the thing and then move the blanket off of, mm. so that he just he was a little OCD and uh, the more OCD he was the more abandoned yeah because he was, like the your feelings of abandonment are going to be related to your attachment style if you're an anxious attached person you you need a lot of chizukim you need a lot of yeah. validation you need hugs. You need, she decided I, after her last kid, I'm done with this. She gained weight because she was using and hormones and it affected yeah. her libido. She went from Morena and then another Morena. When she went to the doctor, the doctor like, what you've been using hormones for so long. When's your, when was your last period? She's like, I have no idea. I cannot tell you yeah. when my last period yeah. was. Went into menopause very early. Mm -hmm. One day she's like telling me this. She talked to her husband and she's like, I went through so much with my body to avoid menstruation because yes. of the meant that I felt. And he said, I wish you would have told me. And she said, but you don't know how you were. She goes, no, I really think if I would have known, I wouldn't have been so crazy. Like, felt like, wow, thank you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I had the same thing with hormones. Nothing was working for me. Nothing. I ended up in the hospital with my first panic attack. And I say this all the time on my podcasts. If you're trying to find hormones that are working for you in order not to become a nida and you're overdosing on hormones, I overdosed on hormones. I went into early ovarian failure at age 35. I had six miscarriages. I went through a lot. So every abandonment was harder and harder for me. And I was so afraid of nida that I, I took two Nuvarings together, not knowing that my body can't handle. And in the beginning, I'm terrible with hormones. I'm awful with hormones. So I would change and change. I would bleed through everything. And then I said, like, why am I doing this? Where am I gaining? I lost myself, but I woke up from it. I ended up in the hospital from a panic attack. I woke up. I realized, what am I doing here? My mental health is the most important thing. I have three children. I need to be alive and well for them. Hormones are not working for me. What can we do? What can we do? And I'll say this a million times. Work with your husband. Hopefully you'll have a husband that's understanding. Go to somebody that can give you empathy. Go to therapy. Figure it out because there's a way to figure it out. And don't overdose on birth control. And oppress your body with hormones just to avoid Nida like I did. And right. I really suffered. It was a growing experience for me. But women don't know that they have options. No, because women were told that they didn't. It's a new generation. And hopefully the older women who really didn't have choices can say to the younger ones, it's a new age. And there's so much more awareness. And there's so much more psychological awareness. And Yes, talk if you need to talk to a rabbi. And by the way, some couples don't. They don't get any kind of rabbinic guidance. They decide for themselves. And that's okay. And that's okay. Sure. Whatever whatever you need. I yeah. mean, there's a spectrum of practice. Right. And 
you need to integrate your values with who you are in a way that feels good for you, in a way that you can live with. Because if you feel oppressed, it's going to come out in some other way. It's a healthy way to live. Yeah. My sister told me that once, I don't remember who she said that told her this, either her college teacher or an aunt of mine, when my sister got married, she came over to her and she said, you have to also remember that you're human and you're going to go through a lot in life, pregnancy, hopefully births, menopause. Remember you're two humans. Take Allah into consideration. Bring it down to your home and do what's good in your home. Of course, with and not because we don't care. And I don't think it was somebody that wasn't like with a high authority. And I said to her, I wish I was told the same thing. I wish. But I had a different journey because of it. And it worked out well. I evolved. And because of my journey, I was giving a speech somewhere and I was sharing about my journey, how I got my first panic attack. And I was talking about the needs of period. A woman comes after me afterwards and says, can I speak to you for a second? She's like, I never knew that it was allowed to think that you're not allowed to go to the mikvah. I thought it was the only one. And she said, I have four children. Every time I had to go to the mikvah, it was torturous. She said, I'm, a, I'm on an IUD for years. She said, but I really want a baby, but I can't fathom the thought. She said, I have panic attacks and I go high on medication when I start thinking if a baby is worth going to the mikvah. And I looked at her and I said, do you really think that's what Hashem wants? Do you really think that's what Hashem wants? She started crying and I said, I'm not going to be your second and I'm not going to tell you, but I'm going to tell you this. Go do your research because you can probably find a million ways of how to do it in a way that's comfortable for you and halacha and you don't have to have this anxiety. Yeah. And I actually want to use this opportunity to plug the Eden Center. Are you familiar with yes, them? Yes. Yeah. They've done a lot to increase awareness so that the mikveh experience can be even an autonomous one. And there has been roles now in, in Israel that if a woman wants to go into the mikveh by herself without without a attendant present, she has the legal right to do that. And the attendant has to leave the room. Does that fly in the very orthodox world, in the Haredi world? My patients, let's say, who live in B'nai Brak, I'll send them, I'll say, you know what, and they'll go to Givat Shmuel, it's across the bridge. So no, it doesn't always fly because mm. that's not the rules that they go by, especially for women who have trauma and mm. they really the autonomy and the mikvah can be very exposing and it can be very triggering. Yeah. And to be able to have an experience that is I mean, some women really can't go. They just, they're so triggered by it. And sometimes you just, you have to do what's right for you mm -hmm. and look for alternative ways. Sometimes it's going to the beach instead or, and for some women, it's, they just don't go anymore. That's also a thing. Yeah. A hundred percent. I remember when I was diagnosed with early ovarian failure, when they was told that I won't get my period very often and then I stopped. And I said, you see, Hashem sent me my miracle. And I was the happiest person. And I said, I hope I never have to see Kirot until my death. I hope I never have to see this place. And I think the goal of this conversation is to know that there's a lot of things that come up in our marriage that we didn't experience before. And it could be so traumatic and it's not somebody's fault, but we need to listen to our body. Yes, it's a very abrupt change. And for many women, it's the first time, the week before the wedding was the first time yeah. that they've been asked to do something that has to do with their bodies. Yeah. Until then, it was your your homework and babysitting and yeah. Being a good girl, but nobody ever asked you to do anything with your body before. And all of a sudden you have to do these badikas and they're so like hard to do. And now I have to 
go naked into the water and I'm being watched. And-, and then be naked in front of a man that I was told that I'm not allowed to be seen by. Very physical transition and recognizing that it's like a watershed event, that yeah. transition yeah. from being a single girl to becoming a married woman. And it's really tough. And it's tough for men too, who don't have so much of an outward change and don't have so much of an embodied physical experience of change, but they have a lot of pressure on them to keep their wives happy, a lot of responsibility. And yeah, I think that the better preparation, the more support you get, the more successful. Unfortunately, the stigma is going down a little bit about therapy, but I think it should be like invest in the thing that's the most precious to you, which is in your marriage. And don't see it as, oh, we're going hush hush to therapy because it's not working. See it as I'm investing in myself before, after. Make it a commitment while you're dating. Yes, we're going to go even when things are looking fine. How can we improve? What can we do better? What's working? What's not working? Have this language before it falls apart. And unfortunately, many times it falls apart in the psych ward, unfortunately, because the body just can't handle it anymore. Correct. I want to thank you, Tali. There's endless stories, endless scenarios, the good, the bad, the in-between, the hope, the despair, all of it. But hopefully every conversation just can inspire somebody to learn more, to just be open-minded more, not to be black and white, not to think all or nothing, to educate, to learn, to evolve, sometimes to apologize, sometimes to say maybe I was wrong. So any words of wisdom before we wrap up to give a lot of hope for the community that's evolving? I think that this conversation, what was heavy, is really there to give hope. It's really there to give hope that... As we do evolve as a community, we're able to look at sexuality and intimacy as something that is not an obligation. It's something that is a developmental experience. We grow together with our partners. We communicate to our partners. And we have that relationship, that very special relationship, in order to help us communicate and connect. And so being able to reframe that is a really important thing while holding on to our own selves each of us in the process. So beautiful. I often share with my children. I said, when sex is done properly, it's mamash, the highest form of joy you can experience. Let's wrap up with that. Let's have a goal because we can get there and it's beautiful and we should work towards it and get a tally on your side. Get a tally on your side to direct you and to see that as a badge of honor. Thank you, Tali, for all your Avodat Kodesh. I always call it Avodat Kodesh and I still believe it. Thank you for your time and your wisdom. Thank you. Bye till next time. Bye. Thank you for listening till the end. We highly appreciate all of our listeners. And Mental Health Together is better. You being here means a tremendous amount to us. If you enjoyed this episode and you would like some extra boost of information and inspiration that is not on the podcast, you can go to our website, hopetorecharge.com. There's some premium content that for the cost of a cup of coffee, you can download some amazing information that will help you, a tool that will guide you through life. So don't skip a beat. Don't hesitate. Go to hopetorecharge.com and see what other offerings we have there for your mental health well-being. Thank you for joining us. And remember, if you enjoyed this and you want to say thank you, the best way of gratitude will be by you leaving a review or a comment or sharing this with a loved one. There is no greater form of gratitude for us. Thank you. Bye till next time.
Looking to reduce your anxiety and stress, relax your muscles, or get a better night's sleep? Check out Maxifies.com 100% legal hemp, where you can find doctor-formulated, lab-certified, high-quality CBD oils, tinctures, and other items, cultivated, grown, harvested, and packaged in the United States, and available in different sizes and strength formulas. Check out Maxifies.com, that's M-A-X-I-F-Y-Z.com, and use coupon code HOPE to get 10% off your order, plus free shipping. That's Maxifies.com.